You want to get out your sermon outline. So, somebody noticed the title of today's message and asked me coming in, was I going to make you cry this morning? So I'm sort of putting the, the, the over-under on making someone cry at about three minutes. So we should probably just pray now. The, uh, so this is actually the last sermon in our series on the most misused and misunderstood verses. When I planned this out, it seemed like a great idea to put this verse on this day. Uh, As I prepared it, it seemed less and less like a great idea, but here we are. So, we're going to go ahead and pray and jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us your word and making us your people. You've brought us uh, here this morning to your word to learn about the way of the wise. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand Your word, your teaching here, it's tough to take because we try so hard and we fail so much. We want our family members to follow Jesus and we hurt when they don't. And they hurt when they don't. And we can't stop the hurt or change their hearts. But you can. Show us that we can trust you not just for ourselves but for our children. We thank you for this word and we pray that you would by the grace of the Holy Spirit Enable us to pray these words in faith. We pray, O Lord, that we would become people who seek after the gospel. Show us how. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jill's parents did everything right. They raised their daughter according to the truths of Scripture, prayers before meals, prayers before bed, church every week. During the summer, Jill attended Uh, Church camps where she memorized Bible verses. She went to Christian school, youth group, and Majinik. But in college, Jill renounced the faith and intentionally distanced herself from church. Eventually, she was expelled for drug and alcohol use, and she moved in with her boyfriend. And Jill's parents were devastated. What have we done wrong? Why has Jill rejected the God we raised her to love? Church friends quietly whispered about Jill's parents' failure to raise a good kid. After all, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. If Jill departed, it must mean her parents failed. Good parenting in, good kids out, right? Oh, my dear, we've been praying for that boy of yours. It must be hard to watch him stray so far. We just ache for you. We're praying you'll figure out what went wrong, you know, what part of the train-up-a-child instruction you missed that led to such a sad turn of events. Have you had that conversation yet? I have. Or some version of it. You know, the one that says there's a formula For raising children who stay true to the faith, and clearly you've missed the boat to the point where your child's going to hell. Yeah, that conversation. There are only a few verses in the Bible that I just can't stand. 
This is one of them. I mentioned to three people this week that I was preaching on this verse, and all three told me how this verse was used as a weapon against either them or their parents because they didn't fill in the blank, do whatever the preferred schooling, parenting, or disciplinary method of the rude, arrogant, and obnoxious speaker was. I obviously have opinions about this. So I just stopped telling people what I was preaching on because I didn't want to hear any more stories about this verse being used as a weapon to hurt other Christians. And if you've ever used this verse in a way that hurts someone else, even if that was not your intention, just please stop and repent now. The misuse of this verse justifies the old saying that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its own wounded. If you're like many Christian parents, this verse has been part of your spiritual reference point for many years. You took the instruction seriously and you did your best to train these children in the ways of God. You do A and you get B, right? And yet something went wrong. You fulfilled part A You took them to Sunday school, you took them to church, you took them to youth group, you prayed before dinner, you had them pray before dinner, you showed compassion to others, you practiced hospitality, you kept your part of the deal. But part B didn't happen. And you don't know why. But then you remember, okay, this verse says, when he is old, he will not depart from it. But Lord, you say, I'm not sure he'll live that long. And there's two different ways of looking at that. And the first one's a bit funny because some days you're not so sure you're just not going to kill him yourself. His actions have gone from illogical to frustrating to ridiculous to irrational, and you just want to clobber him and admit it. It's true. You know it. But the second way of looking at it is far more serious. Is sometimes the behavior of these kids is so self-destructive and so dangerous that you have a very real worry that he simply may not survive this challenging time long enough to get his head on straight. And such fears are not entirely unfounded. More than one parent has buried a child whose poor choice has brought an end to a too short life. So for a lot of folks, the final conclusion, the only place to go from here, since, of course, God always keeps his promises... Therefore, that must mean that I failed, that you failed. You did something wrong. You didn't train up this child in the way he should go. And the weight of that guilt is crippling. So first, I want to tell you that I am so sorry that this verse has been so badly misused and was used as a weapon to pound on your already broken heart as you've grieved and cried and prayed over a child. Second, let me welcome you to the club. There is a club of broken-hearted parents who now know they'll never be good enough this side of heaven. And I know I could be the club president. My kids are all grown, and for the most part, they've turned out pretty well. But like their parents, they're a long way from perfect. And we faced issues of drugs, sex, alcohol abuse, verbal abuse, anger, and spiritual apathy. 
every room in my house has seen tears. And we're not out of the woods yet. So let's all take a deep breath and put the guilt on hold for a minute and just start over. Let's look at what this verse teaches with fresh eyes. Train up a child. Rarely is a proverb so often quoted and so often misunderstood. It has become the slogan of parenting seminars. It gets referenced as a surefire promise, a divine reward for our toil and sweat as parents. Young parents latch on to this proverb with the hope that their training will ensure the faithfulness of their children. Older parents feel the proverb's implicit judgment, weary from watching a child or two depart from the way, and wondering if their children's disobedience points backward to their own failure in training. I feel the weightiness of this proverb. First, as a parent who wants to see my kids love God and love others. But secondly, as a pastor who prays for and works on training children to worship the God who sent his son to rescue them from sin. So at home and at work, I'm involved in training and teaching children in the way they should go. Unfortunately, some interpretations of this verse miss both the genre type of literature, the genre of Proverbs in general, and the meaning of this proverb in particular. And getting this proverb wrong leads to wrong-headed conclusions about parenting and training in the hearts of our kids. So the first question we have to ask is about the proverbs themselves. Are proverbs promises or principles? And the first problem for some interpreters of this verse is to forget that proverbs are just that, proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings categorized under the umbrella of wisdom literature. Unlike the genre of historical narrative, which uh, purposes to tell a story, wisdom literature provides general truths about living in a way that honors God. They're general truths about the way the world normally works, not specific promises that encompass every possible situation. Some Proverbs talk about hard work paying off and laziness leading to poverty. That's generally true. But the genre of Proverbs assumes exceptions. And you may know hardworking people trapped in a cycle of poverty or lazy people with inherited wealth. A proverb is a pithy and per persuasive statement or a series of statements that has been proven true by experience. However, proverbs are not proven true in every case. For example, Proverbs 3, 1 through 3 says, if you obey the commandments in Scripture, they will bring you many days a full life. But that doesn't mean that all Christians who obey God's commandments are going to live into their late 80s. Instead, it means that if you live a life of discipline, Proverbs 1, avoid falling into sexual promiscuity, Proverbs 2, maintain integrity in your relationships, Proverbs 3, and guard your lips from lives, Proverbs 4, then it is generally true that the pitfalls that come from sinful actions will escape you. But not always. Sometimes obeying God's commands 
directly lead to persecution and death. Take Stephen, for instance, being faithful to Christ's instruction to preach the gospel to all nations. He boldly proclaimed uh, God's truth, and he was stoned to death in Acts 7. Proverbs are general truths. We need to interpret them that way. To interpret Proverbs 22.6 as a specific promise without exceptions is to misread the genre. Sometimes you'll find children who are faithful in the Lord and more faithful than their parents. In some cases, way more faithful than their parents. In those cases, that good outcome didn't depend on the parent's training. Other times, you watch a child raised by godly parents go astray, an indication that all the training in the world can't guarantee a child's faithfulness. Case in point, parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. Parables about a father with two sons, both lost in different ways. And we know the prodigal eventually returned to the house, but when Jesus ended the story, the verdict was still out on the older brother. In both cases, we shouldn't assume that the father's inadequate training was responsible for the elder brother's stony heart or the younger brother's rebellious actions. Interpreting the Proverbs as promises is a critical mistake that leads to legalism and moralism and disillusionment. So once again, we see the importance of knowing how to interpret different types of scripture, different genres of scripture, and the heartache that comes when we misuse, misunderstand, or misinterpret the scriptures. Meanwhile, it's all too easy for us to rely on our own vision of training as the silver bullet to our child's heart. In recent years, we've seen a growing consensus among uh, lots of Christians that too much attention has been focused on getting kids to behave. Instead, we should emphasize grace and give kids the gospel. For the most part, I'm grateful for that. After all, there's no sense teaching kids how to do good if we fail to lead them to worship the only one who is good. We shouldn't teach kids virtues apart from the Lord, who's the author of those virtues. And as a pastor, I want to make sure that our kids' curriculum is not just full of uh, moralistic teaching and behavior management, but the kind of biblical teaching that shows them Jesus. But there's a danger here, too, because we begin to rely on the goodness of the gospel and on gospel-centered training, either as parents or church leaders, to ensure that desired outcome for our kids. Once again, we find ourselves relying on our own training as the primary driver in the change of a child's heart, gospel-centered though that training may be. Instead, we ought to recognize that all our efforts at training children uh, in the way of the wise need the power of the Holy Spirit. We present God's word in its beauty and glory and pray for the Spirit to soften hearts. We can put children in a posture to receive God's saving grace. But our training is not to be confused with that grace. To switch the two, our training and God's grace, is to put on ourselves a burden that we cannot possibly carry. The second misstep in interpreting this verse is getting the meaning right. And actually, the Hebrew here is very complex. 
It literally says, initiate or dedicate a child in accordance with the measure of his way. And the words are, are somewhat vague. Some people say in accordance with the mouth of his way. The only other time this word train up or initiate or dedicate is used as a verb in biblical Hebrew is when it's used to dedicate a building, specifically the temple. It's also used four times in Biblical Aramaic in Ezra and Daniel. In Ezra, it's used in the dedication of the temple. And in Daniel, it's used in the dedication of a statue. So it's giving or initiating someone or something with a particular status in hopes of a particular outcome. Now, this could mean several different things. And I actually found about six different ways to interpret this one verse. But it seems to be three sort of dominant views. First one is the most common, direct a child in the way he should go, emphasizing the direction one should take in life. To paraphrase, you might say to set them down on the right path and watch them go. This view argues that this proverb is about morals and living a moral life, which is why if you have a child who does something that's immoral, we feel so guilty. Second, it could mean teach a child in accordance with his nature, to meet them where they are and train them in age-appropriate ways. Many authors think this means to encourage a child uh, in his natural bent. This view argues that the proverb is about giftedness and the vocational life, and there's some prominent people who hold to that, none of whom happen to be Old Testament scholars, none of whom hold to that view. The third view is the negative version, which essentially says if you train up a child according to his sinful nature, then when he is old, he will not depart from that sinful nature. And this view argues that the proverb is a warning about the danger of not correcting our children's sinful nature and emphasizing the need for loving parental discipline. Now, those are the three most common views And I think each of them have some element of common grace truth uh, in them. Ultimately, I think they're all incorrect. Because none of them fit very well with the context of the book of Proverbs in general or the context of Proverbs 22 in particular. And if we've learned one thing in this series over the last four or five months, it's that context is king. But Proverbs are often standalone pithy statements. So before we can continue, we have to ask, how do we know context in Proverbs? Well, first we have to look at Proverbs from the overall perspective of the whole book, what you might call the macro view. And then from the particular perspective of that chapter or passage, what you might call the micro view. And looking at this verse in the context of the book and the chapter, will help us to better understand what it's teaching. So what's the overall context of the book of Proverbs? Uh, There's little disagreement here. Uh, Traditionally, it's viewed as a book about wisdom. Wisdom here meaning the knowledge and ability to live skillfully. It's not talking about somebody who's older or smarter or more intellectual, but applying all that you know and how to live skillfully. 
And it addresses this throughout the book through this consistent comparison of the way of the wise with the way of the fool. Over and over throughout the whole book, you have that comparison. This is the way of the wise. This is the way of the fool. And most commentators hold that the theme verse for Proverbs is Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if we apply the macro context to our verse, it would read something like this. Train up a child in the way of the wise in which he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from the way of the wise. Lending some credence to the view about this being a warning, the opposite also works. Train up a child in the way of the fool in which he would go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from the way of the fool. And I think, ironically, we've been hurt by our arrogance and our inability to listen to Jewish scholars who've obviously spent way more time in history with this verse than we have. Listening to them would greatly help us because this is the most common view in both ancient and modern Judaism, that this is about the way of the wise. Now we have to look at the context of the particular passage, in this case, all of Proverbs 22. And much to our surprise, if you read the whole chapter, Proverbs 22 seems to be about wealth. And more specifically, riches and rewards. And since the rich have more rewards, at least in this life, then much of this passage relates to how the rich should treat other people. And more specifically, how the rich should train their children to treat other people. It's addressing the consequences of the rich acting wisely or foolishly and the consequences of the rich training their children to act wisely or foolishly. So if we apply the micro context to our verse, it would read something like this. Train up a child who has the status of the rich father in the way of the wise in which he should go Even when he is old, he will not depart from the way of the wise. And therefore, we see that the wise, rich father is training his child to serve as the next wise, rich father. So according to the context of the book and the context of the chapter, in this verse, we're dealing with the concepts of wisdom and status as it's applied to our children. And I think the overall context tells us that your status as the rich does not exempt you from either walking in the way of the wise or training your children to walk in the way of the wise. Much of the warnings in Proverbs 22 are directed to the rich person who does not act wisely. So finally, that brings us to the big question of the morning. What does this verse tell us? Now, it's certainly true that a major way for a parent to influence a child is simply by example, by loving the Lord with all your heart, living a faithful life in front of them. Children are imitators of what they see, for better or worse. But one of the greatest ways that parents can influence their children is by intentionally teaching them the scriptures, impressing the commands of God on them by talking about spiritual truth. God says that in Deuteronomy. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And the Bible's full of helpful, practical advice on what to do and what not to do in raising children. 
We're warned about the dangers of withholding discipline, and yet we're cautioned not to be uh, overly strict and cause them to be resentful or filled with despair. And truth be told, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Hopefully that's not new news for anybody. We're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But the important thing is we create a culture of grace in our homes where healthy communication, biblical principles, spiritual formation become staples of everyday life. Years ago, we were looking for a teacher for the high school class. And one of the high school students uh, went to his father and asked, why can't we have the pastor? And since neither of us had a very good answer for that question, I started teaching the high school class and have done so every four years for the last 22 years. It's been interesting to watch the high schoolers as they leave for college. Mind you, these are all students who've been raised in Christian homes and for the most part in this church. Some remained faithful to their family upbringing and others did not. Either way, each student had to ask the questions, is this faith I was raised in really mine? Do I own and believe these truths for myself? Or am I merely the product of a belief system that I've never really embraced? And some of our students started off college very poorly, but ended very well. Others started off very well, but ended very poorly. And there are some who started off well and finished well, but struggled in the middle. From ages 16 to 24, there are virtually none who didn't struggle and doubt at some point in that process. Those who embrace faith in Christ for themselves seem to grow spiritually during those formative college years, albeit with ups and downs in virtually every case. But those who rejected their Christian heritage quickly succumbed to college life and went in the wrong direction, revealing the condition of their hearts. When that happens, many Christian parents find themselves totally distraught because they feel helpless and unable to do anything about it. And as a pastor, there's times when parents approach me with a desperate look in their eye as they attempt to grapple with a child who's gone astray. It is a heartbreaking experience to watch your son or daughter abandon the way of life that was modeled for them, taught to them as they grew up in a God-fearing home. And no one knows for sure why that happens. But somehow, they have to come to grips with what they believe on their own. And part of that process may involve a difficult season of poor decisions and painful consequences. And you do them no favor to try to remove those painful consequences. I can only imagine how the father felt in the biblical story of the prodigal watching his son walk away. That must have been gut-wrenching. Many parents today who've seen their son and daughters walk away feel the exact same way. But if they come back, like the prodigal son did in the story, there's profound rejoicing. But nowhere in the Bible, and especially in this verse, is that return guaranteed. The book of Proverbs makes it clear there's a right path and a wrong path. 
One is the way of the wise, the other is the way of the fool. The right path requires a parent to work hard, intentionally teach, provide loving discipline in order to train the child to walk in the way of the wise. And the reason this is a lot of work is because the child's natural tendencies are of the flesh due to the inherent sin nature that we're all born with. So the goal of this proverb is to admonish us to train our children especially in the way of the wise, which is the proper way he should go. This is none other than God's way, the way of righteousness. Therefore, the proverb suggests as a matter of historical observation, when this kind of training is consistently done, it usually brings positive results, especially when the child comes of age. The writer of Proverbs is stating a longstanding general principle about raising children, it's just as true today as it was back then. Hearts and minds are shaped at an early age. Children imitate what they see. So when godly parents create a culture at home where they exercise healthy, formative, corrective discipline on their children, it will most likely result in healthy thinking and good behaviors as they grow older. But again, this is not a hard and fast promise, but a general principle that comes out of years of experience. The Old Testament scholar and PCA pastor Tremper Longman provides some excellent remarks and a warning about understanding Proverbs 22.6. He writes, the point is that this proverb encourages parents to train their children, but does not guarantee that if they do so, their children will never stray. This insight into the form of the proverb is particularly important for parents to grasp when their adult children have not turned out well. Otherwise, the verse becomes a sledgehammer of guilt, a purpose it was not intended to carry. On the other side, the proverb should not become a reason for pride if one's children turn out well. The proverb is simply an encouragement to do the right thing when it comes to raising your children. So if you're a parent, don't lose hope. Keep modeling the faith. Even if your children are grown and out of the house such that your daily influence is minimal, keep walking faithfully. And if at some point you failed in the past, as virtually all of you have or will, admit it, even to your children. And make a vow to change. Children, I've learned this the hard way, can still see into the hearts of their parents no matter how old they are. Which finally leaves us with the question that many of you are wondering about and some are anticipating with fear and trembling. And that is, what should I do with grown children? What is a Christian parent of an unbelieving adult child to do? I'd like to say I always offer these three things. Uh, uh, I usually do when I remember, and that's not always. But they're to remember the past, pray in the present, and hope for the future. First, remember the past. You spent years sowing the truth of God's word into the life of your child. You taught them the word of God and prayed for them and brought them to church week in and week out. You pointed them to Christ through your conversations and actions. Did you do it perfectly? No, you didn't. No one has. But you did sow the seeds of truth. And God says his word will not return void, Isaiah 55. His word is living and active, Hebrews 4, and it brings salvation to those who hear, Romans 10. These seeds of truth are calling out to them for the rest of their life. 
And in the present, you have to remember all the truth they encountered in the past and trust that God will work by his appointed means. Second, pray in the present. Various parents have asked me how they can continue to call their child to faith and yet treat them as an adult. And I remind them, seize the little moments, the times you get to share, and you can share gospel truths here and there. Every conversation doesn't need to be an evangelistic sermon, but a well-placed thought or truth can be invaluable. This is necessary and it's good, but it's just as important as to be uh, consistent and faithful prayer for them. Don't stop asking your Heavenly Father to hear and answer your prayer like the persistent widow in Luke 18. Keep praying until that position is realized. And prayers need honesty more than polish. And they can contain seeming contradictions. Don't be afraid to utter prayers like these. Lord, I'm tired of praying the same thing over and over, but I will. God, it's been so long. Nevertheless, today is a new day. Jesus, I feel like quitting. Thank you for not quitting on me. Father, I see your hand at work. I just wish it would work in my son. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Enlist elders and friends and pastors to pray for your child. Don't keep this in secret. A lot of people try to keep it secret in order to save face. Ultimately, that's going to make it harder. Enlist friends. You don't have to tell the world, and you don't have to post it on Facebook, although you can. But get your friends and your elders and deacons and pastors and people you trust to pray for you and to pray for your child. Make it the prayer you pray when you rise up and when you lie down. James 5.16 tells us the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That applies to you too. Your prayers working with his word planted in the past may be the very means by which your son and daughter is converted. Third, hope for the future. Don't despair. Trust God. Hope and pray that they will turn to him. Are they too far gone? No. Never allow our adversary to sow such doubt. No matter how great their sin, no matter how hard their heart, how firm their resolve, no matter how strident their tongue, our Lord can work the miracle of conversion in the blink of an eye. Believe and hope that God can and will work. Does it seem hopeless? Maybe. Does it seem impossible? Perhaps. But I have good news. Our God is a God who majors in the seemingly hopeless and impossible. Christian parent, your trial is great, but God is greater yet. He's not blind to your anguish. He does not ignore the prayers of his children. May God hear your heart's cry and answer and work in your child's life. May he take your child and make him or her his own. He is worthy of our trust. Pour out your heart before him. We're told to do that, Psalm 62. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. But I do want you to know that unless you understand the gospel, it's not safe for you to read Proverbs. How are you going to get wise if you don't read Proverbs? You can't. But unless you understand the gospel, it's not safe. Why do I say that? Here's why. Have we not seen 
The Bible's understanding of reality is that there is a divine order to the world. There's a divine order to reality. But it's a fallen world. It's a fallen order that needs to be healed. There's an order designed to reality, but it's fallen. This is the reason why when you go to Proverbs, people don't understand them. Unless you understand both of these things, the Proverbs don't make a lot of sense. We can use today's verse as an example. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. If you're a relativist who doesn't believe in a divine order, you look at that and say, how old-fashioned. The idea of child discipline, I don't believe in that. I believe children should be able to make their own choices. Okay, so you don't believe it. On the other hand, if you're a moralist, if you believe there's a divine order, but you don't realize that it's fallen... You believe God made things to work in a certain way, but you don't realize they don't always work that way because it's a fallen world. Then you're going to read it moralistically. And I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, train up a child properly, and when he's old, he'll live a good life. If he's not living a good life, you didn't train him up properly. And that's a huge guilt gun. And parents get blown away by it. Now, hopefully by now, you're starting to figure out what the problem is. The Proverbs aren't statutes or laws or ordinances or promises. They're ways that things ordinarily work in the world, but they don't always work that way. There's a divine order. So, of course, in general, if you're consistent with the discipline of your child, that's the best thing. There's a divine order. But that order is fallen. We live in a fallen world. And that means sometimes, even if you do everything right, because it's a fallen world, your kid can still grow up and go off the rails. The Proverbs aren't promises. You might call them best practices in a divinely ordered yet fallen world. And until you understand that, you're not going to get the Proverbs. I mean, we saw this with Job and his friends. You remember? Job, look at the Proverbs. If you live right, life goes right. Your life's not going right. Obviously, you're not living right. That's just moralism. Understanding there's a divine order, but not understanding it's fallen. The fact of the matter is, yes, there is a divine order. So, yes, work hard, and generally, your life will go better. Yes, tell the truth, and generally, your life will go better. Yes, be sexually faithful, and generally, your life will go better. But it doesn't have to. After all, Jesus did all those things, and his life didn't end well. More than anyone, he understood and was confronted with the fallenness of this place. And if you're a relativist or a moralist, and you think you can make up your own right and wrong, or you believe you do everything right in your life, and your life will go well, Proverbs teaches that you're a fool. You don't see the reality You don't understand that there is a divine order, but it's fallen. And only the gospel lets you see the whole picture. Only the gospel keeps you from being a fool. Only the gospel makes it safe for you to read Proverbs without clobbering yourself and everybody else with it or just writing it off. And ultimately, we have to rely on God to do in our lives and in the lives of our children what we're unable to do for ourselves. You know, the Lord has to pour out just as much grace to save a child in a believing family as he does to save a child in an unbelieving family. 
That may be offensive to a few, but I think it's true. God doesn't look out and say, silver nails are so screwed up. That's just going to need so much more grace. This is just as much grace, believing family, unbelieving family. We need to embrace, this is a humbling but liberating truth. We're not in control of our children's destiny. We're powerless to create faith in our children's hearts. We can encourage our children to hunger for biblical wisdom, but we can't make that choice for them. Only the sovereign Lord can change our children's hearts. And it's because as dear as they are to us, they're sinners by nature. Biblically speaking, there's no such thing as a good kid. The Bible teaches that children are not good by nature. They're not blank slates upon which we write our values. They're not inherently innocent, nor are they genetically predisposed to be good. The Bible teaches that children are genetically predisposed to be bad. Because every child is born with original sin and a rebellious nature. This is the picture that the Bible paints of our kids and of us. Our children need God's sovereign grace for their nature to be changed. They won't be good unless he changes them. Then, of course, their goodness is not innate but imputed, which means they've received the perfect righteousness of Jesus and are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, there's no such thing as a good parent. There's only one perfect parent, and it's not you. When our kids rebel, we're tempted to be angry with God. We're tempted to remind God of all of our efforts, our sacrifices, our godly focus. We don't think it's fair that our children turn away from the Lord, especially when we compare our efforts uh, to those of others who don't seem to have any problems and who don't stand for the Lord the way we did. You know, I preach every Sunday for years. I deserve better. Fact of the matter is, none of us deserve godly kids because none of us have the power to change their hearts. None of us have been perfectly consistent in loving and disciplining them. And like us, they are saved by God's grace alone. Only God can change your children's uh, hearts, only God can change them for salvation. And the transformation that results is of the Lord. God is the perfect parent. God's sovereignty and mercy is our only source of hope. Not our children, not our parenting skills, our spouse, the books we read, the articles we read, not our prayers. We all serve a God who is able to turn the heart of a rebel back to himself. He is able to forgive us for our failures as parents and to show mercy to our children. He is able to overcome all of our past transgressions and present difficulties. Your children need the gospel. You need the gospel. I need the gospel. So seek the gospel. Pray the gospel. Hear the gospel. Speak the gospel. It's what we need, parents and children. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are sinful people who don't know how to handle other sinful people, especially when they're in our family. We sorrow over bad choices we watch them make, especially when we know the hours that were spent teaching them, praying for them, worshiping with them, Sunday after Sunday. Remind us, we can't change anyone's heart, even our child's. Remind us of the power of the message of Christ crucified. And part of our task is to remind each other of these things and of that power. Lord, we ask for your mercy on those we love. Mercy for the hardships they will face, hardships that may be necessary to lead them to repentance. Thank you that by your sovereign grace you were able to save a sinner like me. And thank you that no sinner is beyond the reach of your irresistible grace, even and especially our close friends and family members. We are people who have no idea how to seek your gospel, how to pray the gospel, how to hear the gospel, how to speak the gospel. So immerse us in your word that we will learn to know and love the gospel of Jesus. Remind us this is a gospel for rebels and prodigals, a gospel that welcomes them home with great joy and rejoicing. For those parents of prodigals this morning, we pray for your son or daughter. We pray that they would make haste. We pray that they would wait, uh, that we would wait faithfully alongside you and Jesus. We pray that we would be ready to fatten the calf and prepare the party. We pray that we would stand out in the yard, shielding our eyes from the sun, hoping to catch a glimpse of you coming over the horizon a glimpse of our child coming home. That day cannot come soon enough. For we ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, waiting with us with arms wide open. Amen.